Good morning. Our text this morning will be book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 15 through the end of the chapter, which is 28, so as you're turning there. I would like to uh, take a moment. Um, it has become a, some sort of a tradition for the outgoing elder to preach one last time, Gail and Jason have done that before me. And uh, my, as Doug mentioned, my tenure as an elder ends at the end of this month. And so feel compelled to leave you with a final thought of my time as an elder. I have valued the relationships that have been built by serving together. The mutual support and encouragement from that group really has been life-changing for me. But I want, what I want to tell you after being an elder, and I hope that this, uh, this causes a gasp among all of you, is that elders aren't special. Uh, and by that, I don't mean to say that we shouldn't respect or listen to them or value them. What I mean is that being an elder is just another way that ordinary Christians serve the church, just in a particular way. And as I exit, I'm praying for other men to desire the task of elder and be recognized by the church and placed in service in that particular way. And also as I'm exiting, I'm also praying that all of us would love Jesus in such a way that we would also love his church and serve each other in the unique way that God has given all of us to serve each other. By that, that God would be more and more glorified in his church. So to sum it up, I would say that serving is for everyone. Hopefully you found your way to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15. I'll start reading there. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with, uh, with better I'm sorry, I lost my place. With, purified with, with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters in the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray that we would be encouraged and shaped by it. By your spirit, give to your people what you would have them hear. We depend on you alone in this. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This passage deserves a good overview because we are toward the end of a long argument. This is the heart of the epistle. And so reminding ourselves of how the logic of this argument has progressed will help us get up to speed in this passage. The argument begins with the desire to move past the elementary things into some more advanced ideas in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And Melchizedek is that big advanced idea that he wants to get to. He begins with Melchizedek and he builds to where we are today. This is like algebra, which I was horrible at, where once you prove a theorem, you can build more theorems from it. Once he proves that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, it means uh, that there must be another covenant to go with him. As he says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. He's saying you can't take a different kind of priest and insert him into the existing covenant. It's like taking a baseball player with a mitt and putting him on a football field and expect him to go catch a touchdown pass. Or you can't take a quarterback and put him on a baseball mound and expect him to go strike out a batter with a football. A baseball player belongs on a baseball field. A, foot, a quarterback belongs on a football field. A Levitical priest only belongs in the Old Covenant, and a priest after the order of Melchizedek must belong in a new covenant. But that's a big deal, because a covenant is the means by which human beings can live in relationship with God. And just like a priest can't decide on their own to be a priest, a covenant between God and human beings can only be initiated by God. And that covenant has to contain the means by which sinful human beings can approach a holy God. That has always been by the means of a sacrificial animal, representing the animal receiving the punishment for the sins of the people. So it flows. If there must be a new kind of sacrifice for the new covenant of the new priest. The sermon series in Hebrews has been titled The Greater and Better Covenant. And that should tell us a major part of what we will see in this book is a comparison between two covenants. One of the ways that the author has and will continue to help us with this comparison is to give us a better lens to see the Old Testament through. The new priest, the new covenant, the new sacrifice is the reality and the old covenant is merely 
a foreshadowing of it, merely a type of the reality. The mistake that the author is warning them about is to think of the Judaism that they had previously left is a reality that they can go back to. But it's not a reality. It's a shadow. To go back is not just to go back to something that isn't as good. It's to go back to nothing. And do not think this means that the Old Covenant isn't important. It is. It's important because it points to the reality. It's important because it teaches us something uh, greater, about something greater than itself. There are things that we need to know about our covenant that we can only know by learning about the old covenant. Our text this morning is a great example of the old helping shed light on significant truths about the new. I love this quote by Albert Moeller on this text. The church today is impoverished by truncated, reductionistic articulations of the gospel. We often talk about how someone can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from their sins, but we often have no idea what took place in order for that promise to be true. Hebrews demonstrate that it's the Father's will that his people understand not only what Christ has done for us, but how he did it. The reason is because how Christ achieves our redemption more fully demonstrates the glory of God. We can't honor, appreciate, and worship God for what he has done unless we understand what it costs to achieve our salvation. I wonder if I really had to say, this came from Albert Moeller after you heard reductionistic articulations. Okay. Well, I'd like to take our text this morning and make four assertions about our high priest. One, his mediation secures the inheritance of the called. Two, his blood inaugurates the eternal covenant. Three, his presence satisfies the requirements of sacrifice. And four, his return will rescue the eagerly awaiting. So first, his, medi his mediation secures the inheritance of the called. Jesus is called a mediator here for the second time. In chapter 8, verse 6, the author says that the covenant that Jesus mediates is a better covenant. The focus there was on the superiority of the covenant because it comes with better promises. Here it is called the new covenant. The new covenant is the better covenant and Jesus is its mediator. The mediation here is referring to his role as high priest. A high priest is meant to be a mediator, that he is in the middle between two parties. The high priest represents the people before God, and he also represents God to the people. What this high priestly work will be, will be more fully explained in the rest of our text, but I want to spend a few moments discussing his unique ability to be our mediator, because the author has laid the groundwork for us to understand and admire him as our mediator. 
In the first words of this epistle, he said, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Who is it who's qualified to represent God to man? The only man who is the radiance of the glory of God. And what man can show us what God is like? The only man who is the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is the only one who could ever perfectly mediate God to men. And as Matt said this morning, that's, that's why it's so rewarding to meditate on the incarnation during the Christmas season. But he's also the only man who could ever represent men to God. In chapter 2, verse 17, the author writes that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. This is the man who knows what it's like to be human, to even feel the weight of temptation, and at the same time can stand in the presence of a holy God on his own sinless merit. Let's not let the word mediator pass by without taking a moment to appreciate how perfectly our Savior meets the requirement in a way that no one else could. In the second part of verse 15, the author gives the result of his mediation. Those who are called may receive the eternal promised inheritance. And let's not let this pass by either because the author has already previewed the inheritance in a special way and will return to it again in another special way. So I want to preview, review, and preview our inheritance for a moment. In chapter 4, the author uses rest, the word rest, to describe what God has promised to his people. Uh, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God in verse 9. And in verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest. What has Jesus secured for the called? Chapter 4 describes it as rest, typified by the rest of the promised land. There are probably many ways to talk about rest, but something from our study in Jeremiah really stood out to me, and I'd like to use it as an illustration here. Jeremiah tells us of judgment where the Lord removes the rest that he had given them. In our text, we're going to see three things that demonstrate what God's rest provides. Jeremiah 34, 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, to famine, declares the Lord. God is removing what he had given them in his rest. His, in his rest, there is freedom from the sword, freedom from pestilence, freedom from famine. In the full and final rest of our inheritance, there is no threat. There is peace and safety. Isaiah says they shall beat their swords into plowshares. We won't need swords in our inheritance. Where there is no sin, there is no conflict between men. Moreover, where there is no sin, God's wrath against sin will never again bring a curse. There'll be no pestilence in our inheritance, no decay, no corruption, 
Age will never inhibit or weaken our bodies. Sin will never be present to poison our souls or to bring shame or to twist our emotions or our desires. In our inheritance, there will never be famine. We will have rest because God has provided all that we will need. No more grasping and clawing for the things that we think we need. Overflowing abundance is what we will inherit. Joy everlasting in the presence of a loving God. That is the rest that he gives. But looking ahead, the author is going to describe the inheritance again in a specific way. What is Abraham looking forward to in chapter 11? In chapter 11, verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What is the inheritance? What is he looking forward to? A city. And our author returns to the idea in chapter 12, verse 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The inheritance, the rest that we are waiting for, is found in the heavenly Jerusalem. He lists all that we will encounter in the city of the living God, and the final person in the list is our mediator, Jesus. It brings to mind again the comparison to Melchizedek, the king who is also a priest in the earthly Salem or Jerusalem. Jesus is the reality. He is the true king, the true high priest, whose mediation secures the eternal inheritance. I mentioned earlier that Hebrews gives us a lens to see the old covenant through. The one thing that is apparent is the old covenant prepares the way for the new covenant. There are things that are similar or have continuity so that we can learn about our new covenant, but there are things that are different or have discontinuity because it's not the same covenant. It's a new covenant. Starting in verse 16 through verse 22, our author highlights items that are compared and contrasted later in 23 through 26. I'd like for us to go ahead and read the event that he is referring to earlier in the chapter. Uh, so let's go to Exodus. We find that passage in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8. Exodus 24, 3 through 8. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain 
and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Before we get to our main points about this passage, I want to remind you of a few things that would have been very familiar with the first audience of this letter. A covenant was serious business. You don't get splashed with blood every day. It was a declaration of loyalty with life and death consequences. This was true even when a covenant was made between two people. When a sacrifice was part of a covenant-making ceremony, you're putting your life on the line in making a promise to be loyal. When I think about these Israelites saying, we'll be obedient, I just shake my head because it's eight chapters from here that we have the golden calf incident. This covenant is going to fail. I can't resist reminding us that two weeks ago, when we studied Hebrews 8, the author quoted Jeremiah 31, where the new covenant is promised. And it's also referring back to the covenant, this, this failed covenant that we see here that Jeremiah and the author of Hebrews calls to our minds. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What is it about the failed covenant that will be the same for the new covenant? It must be inaugurated with blood, and it must deal with sin by means of sacrifice. So in verses 23 through 26, we begin to see how Jesus accomplished both of these in the new covenant. And it starts with our second point. His blood inaugurates the eternal covenant. We've already seen last week in chapter 9 that the earthly tabernacle was merely a copy of the true tabernacle of heaven. Here in verse 23, the author states that just as the tabernacle and its furnishings needed a purification by the blood of the sacrifice, so the heavenly things must be purified. And that's really kind of a surprising statement. Is there something defiled about the heavenly things so that they need a purification? That doesn't seem to be the best way to think about it. More likely, this is the way that the author is telling us that the better blood of Jesus was necessary to make even the heavenly location appropriate for the work that was about to take place there. As the first covenant was inaugurated with sprinkling of blood, in a similar way, the new covenant is inaugurated with blood. But the contrast is that it isn't the blood of a sacrificed animal, 
but of the perfect high priest who willingly shed his own blood and all of the blessings of the covenant relationship that we have with our God are secured by this great action. More to come on the work of Christ, but I want to pause here to dwell on the significance of this moment. We are considering the most important moment in the universe. Think about Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says that all things were created by him. They were created for him. And he reconciles all those things by the blood of his cross. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul calls the work of Christ a plan for the fullness of time. And my awesome ESV study Bible has a great note on that, which says the work of Christ on the cross is the central axis for the history of creation. The central axis for the history of creation. The author of Hebrews is giving us the deepest view we have into the most important, most powerful, most moving action that has ever happened. He continues with our third point. His presence satisfies the requirements of sacrifice. Not only was blood required for inauguration of the new covenant, we saw in Jeremiah that the new promised covenant would deal fully and finally with the sin of the covenant community. Verses 25 and 26 tell us that our great high priest offered his own blood as his priestly action. And it was so perfect, so powerful, that it puts away sin once for all and so secures an eternal redemption. The old cannot compare to this. You could start sacrificing animals on day one of the universe and continue for all eternity, and it wouldn't match the value of his once for all sacrifice. In just a few verses into chapter 10, we're going to read, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is one of the big tensions of the Old Testament. The sacrificial system left a person perplexed. Yes, sin required sacrifice, and it worked powerfully as a symbol of death that sin brings, and the punishment that is due for the sin, and even the wrath of God that is invoked by sin because of its affront to his holiness. But how could sacrificial animals ever assuage a righteous God? There wasn't equity there. 
What does animal blood have to do with human sin? Humans owed the debt, not animals. And think of what all those sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement, meant. Think of all the blood that never ended. And as Doug's sermon taught us last week, it never changed them. It never changed the conscience. But this great work, so powerful, so complete, so perfect, that its once-for-all sacrifice reaches back in time to forgive all who have ever been called. It reaches forward into history and changes the hearts of all the members of the new covenant community. It pays the debt of sin that was against any former rebel who by faith can now call themselves children of God. Not the blood of an animal, but the blood of a true human being. Not a human whose sin needs its own sacrifice, but a sinless, perfect human. And not a victim, but one who offered himself out of love for his own. The author previewed this all the way back in chapter 2, which we've referred to before, chapter 217. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But I want to backtrack just a little and talk about location. He appeared in the presence of God in order to perform his high priestly work. The scripture goes to great pains to describe how unapproachable the presence of God is. The covenant-making ceremony we are comparing occurred at Mount Sinai. It was a terrifying place. They thought they would die if they heard God speak from, again from the mountain. Whoever touched the mountain except those who were supposed to were to be put to death. The higher up the mountain, the closer to God's presence. The top was covered by a thick cloud. Here's what happened after Moses had finished building the tabernacle. We can read about it in Exodus 40, verse 33. Exodus 40, verse 33. And now I'm keeping you hopping with all the references. Exodus 40, 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled in it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The tabernacle is meant to be seen as a mobile Mount Sinai. They left Sinai, but God's presence didn't leave them. He was there because the tabernacle was there. To ascend the mountain in an unworthy manner was uh, deadly to sinful humanity. To enter the most holy place in an unworthy manner was deadly to sinful humanity. Now, instead of traveling upward to approach his terrifying holiness on a mountain, the priest traveled inward to approach 
his holiness. As awesome and frightening as that mountain was, we are meant to see and to place the same weight on the tabernacle. But that was only the copy. Jesus neither ascended an earthly mountain nor entered a man-made tent, but entered into the very presence of God, symbolized by the curtained-off most holy place of the tabernacle. And I think the author has been wanting to get to this place for a while. At the end of chapter 5, he wants to introduce the topic of Jesus as the Melchizedekian high priest. And it was hard to explain because they were dull of hearing. That leads to one of the strongest warning passages in chapter 6, but he follows it up with one of the strongest encouragements as he returns to the topic of Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 6, 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, it took him a while, but he finally built the argument all the way from Melchizedek to the work that takes place behind the curtain. And you can tell from what he says in chapter 6 that he intends for this to be a great encouragement. Because of this work, he is an anchor for your soul. This is the means by which you can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. No believer ever has to wonder if this sacrifice is enough. No degree of sin is too severe for this sacrifice. No quantity of sin is too great for this sacrifice. Jesus paid it all and at that moment. So the transaction is finished. This isn't like your budget where your bank account only has so much and the bills keep coming in and you're not sure if, you're, if there's going to be enough by the time you get to the end of the month. It's not like that. Every single sin of every single believer for all time was paid for in that moment, it is finished. It is done. Once for all, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is the anchor for your soul. But here's another vital point about this great work of our high priest. You can't see it. This didn't happen in a physical tent temple it happened in the very presence of God and so if it's really going to anchor your soul it requires faith what is faith where do we learn about faith where is there a definition for faith I think there's one in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen Anchor your soul by setting your mind on this unseen thing, away from, the human, away from human eyes, in the very presence of God, our high priest met the requirements of sacrifice. And that brings us to our fourth point. His return 
will rescue the eagerly awaiting. Verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment, in a letter full of warnings, this technically isn't one, but we will be wise to consider and be warned by this truth. Unless the Lord returns, we will all face the fact that our lives are but a vapor and face death. It cannot be avoided. The matching truth is that for each human death, there's a matching judgment of that human being. Each human being, one death, one judgment. For those who are called, for those who have placed their faith in their mediator and his high priestly work, that judgment has already taken place by the sacrifice of himself on their behalf. But for any who have not believed the gospel so as to be saved, the inevitability of death is also the inevitability of judgment to condemnation. And if that's you, I urge you, throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. Confess you're a sinner in need of a savior. Repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and he will save you. The last words of our passage this morning continue with inevitability. The inevitability of the return of Christ. There will be a second appearance, but this time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's address the saving part first. Aren't God's people already saved? Yes and no. We are already saved and not yet saved. We are justified in the eyes of God because of Jesus, but we are still waiting for the best. When at the appearance of Jesus Christ, we will see him and be like him, says 1 John 3.2. Or Philippians 3.21 he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In this final rescue, our glorification, the final aspect of our salvation, that's what we are waiting for. And our text says we are eagerly waiting for it. And I pray that that would be true of us. I think of the original audience and the trials and difficulties that they were going through. The author is trying to make them see that they're, they're almost home. Think of the race he's going to tell them about in chapter 12. Finish that race. And at the finish line is joy that you can't even comprehend. With each step we take, it should come with an eagerness of what or really who we are waiting for. We can't see this with our eyes, but we can know it's true. And if we know it's true, our lives will reflect it with an eagerness to see him, our great high priest who mediates an eternal covenant that was inaugurated by the perfect sacrifice of himself, whose blood is the once for all payment for our sin who will soon return to rescue us. Amen. We are about to transition to the Lord's Supper, and we can't have a better text to prepare us. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
The bread and wine are meant to remind us of the sacrifice that we just looked at. This is the sacrifice that unites us into a family. This is the meal that we share together to remember the great work our high priest performed on our behalf. I always try to think of three things that as, as I prepare myself for this meal, past, present, and future. I remember that in the past, 2,000 years ago, Jesus sacrificed himself for me. I remember that I have abundant life right now because of the gospel. And I remind myself the truth of the future that I'm waiting for another meal. There'll be a day when we will share another meal. And it will be as real as this meal in the literal, physical presence of our Savior. I want to give you one more nugget from our text in chapter 9. Verse 11 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest, the author points to the past. Verse 24, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God, the author points to the present. Verse 28, will appear a second time. The author points to the future, past, present, and future. As we share this meal, you might consider the past, present, and future work of your high priest. As we are warned not to participate in this meal in an unworthy manner, we should also consider the other members of this body, that we are to be in fellowship in this. At Boulevard, we don't require that you be a member of this specific church in order to share in this meal, but we do ask that you only participate if you are a baptized believer in Christ. If you're not a baptized believer, we ask that you let the bread and the cup pass by. If you're part of this family, this meal is for you. Just a bit of instruction. Uh, we will pass out the elements. You'll take the bread. You'll hold it. Wait for us to pray together. And then we'll take it together. Then the juice will be passed out. Take it. Hold it. Wait for the prayer. And we will pray together. And then drink it together. Let's pray. And as we do, the deacons who will be serving us can come forward. Father, we thank you again for your word. I pray that our confidence in Jesus, our Savior, our great high priest, was magnified in our hearts and minds this morning. We thank you for the open access to your throne of grace that we can approach with boldness. Help us, in spite of our circumstances, to live with an eagerness to see our Savior face to face. Help us to treasure the work that he accomplished to secure our inheritance. May our knowledge of him and of his work lead to the transformation of our lives, that you would receive more and more glory through your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.